Hello friends and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly rapid-fire roundup of board game reviews. This episode, Ruth is going to start us off with Sky Tango from one of my favorite designers, Jacques Zemay. Stephanie talks us through Atlas, Enchanted Lands, illustrated by a very good friend of the show, Beth Sobel. Sarah's covering one of the hottest new games out there, Fog of Love. Lindsay will tell us all about the new version of Martin Wallace's London. And as penance for covering a brand new game back in episode 24, I'm talking about the now ancient by board game standards No Thanks from Thorsten Gimler. As always, we're happy to have you with us today. Now let's hear about some games. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, talking about a game that's made itself a solid part of our two-player game rotation. Designed by Jack Zemet and illustrated by Johan Rüdinger, Sky Tango was published in 2012. Depending on your area, the publisher will vary, but mine came from Zeman Games. This is an absolutely gorgeous little card game that has players building both day and night rows of cards in a tableau in front of them. As the cards are placed down, the rows will trace the path of the sun and wind through the sky as they dance their way along the same route without ever coming together. The game does play two to four players, with four player roles involving playing in partners, but I've never tried the game that way, and honestly I only really tend to play Sky Tango as a two player game, and it's that experience that is forming the basis of this review. Sky Tango's deck is split into orange sun cards and blue moon cards, with each having a set numbered 1 through 29, and then some unnumbered eclipse cards. Players start the game with five cards, and on a turn choose whether to play a card to the table, or pick cards up for scoring, provided they have a long enough row. When placing a card, it must be added to the end of a row, with lower numbers to the left and higher to the right. Once placed, cards cannot be placed between other cards, so leaving a large jump in numbers can have a player stuck without a lot of placement options. Luckily, players can place cards in anybody's rows, not just their own, which both increases the likelihood of having somewhere to play a card, and gives plenty of opportunities to screw with your opponent. Some of the cards in Sky Tango feature animals amongst the art, and these aren't just decorative, as any time a card with an animal is played, the player has to immediately play another card to the table, which can be good or bad. The Eclipse cards are played on top of previously placed cards, leaving a gap. Players will want to fill those gaps, as they need a row of at least five cards that doesn't contain any Eclipses in order to add the cards to their scoring pile. Once the deck's been depleted, players get one point per non-Eclipse card in their score pile, and then subtract a point for each non-Eclipse card left in front of them or in their hand in order to determine a winner. One of the most interesting factors of gameplay is that players only draw more cards when they start a turn with that empty hand, which means players need to carefully consider the order in which they play their cards in order to not end up with an unplayable hand. And if this does happen, and the player doesn't have a row to score and pick up, then instead they have to declare a total eclipse, discarding all of the rows in front of them and their hand. This means sometimes you're forced to play a helpful card on an opponent's rows purely because it's the only place you can put it, and despite the fact that you know it's going to be a point for them the minute they score that row. This is very much in contrast to the times you play a card in an opponent's row purely to make things really difficult for them, which happens a lot, as while Sky Tangle is beautiful, it's also extremely cutthroat. And it is a stunningly beautiful game. Johan Riddiger's art is stark, bold, and full of vivid color. And as the cards are placed down, they form a panoramic landscape over which the sun and moon rise and fall. Consecutive numbers will match exactly when placed next to each other, but even when the numbers jump, it still looks beautiful and comes together. It's a game that people stop and ask about, drawn by how it looks. And Sky Tangle, for that reason and its size, is an idle game for travel or playing in restaurants. It's the only component 
opponents are the 68 cards in the deck. There are also narrow enough cards that building your rows doesn't take up too much table space, and so my husband and I have played it at bars without any issue. The bold, clear art on the cards also makes it easy to play in low light levels, a constant concern when playing in public. However, I will mention that this single deck card game does come in an extremely oversized box, and it's one that's fitted with an insert that bears no relation to the card size contained within. It's still a portable package in that original box, but for the sake of efficiency you may want to transfer for the deck to another container if you take it with you many places. Sky Tango is full of player interaction, the ability to play on other people's rows, the fact that sometimes you end up being forced to help others, the use of eclipses for both attack and defense, and then the endgame strategy of simply shoving negative points at each other means that this is a tableau building card game in which you can't risk focusing too much on your own display. But the fact that playing in another player's row can also give them points tempers that take that a bit, and leads to a lot of aha moments when you manage to turn that attempted sabotage in your favor. And with the game taking just 20 minutes to play, the cutthroat and sometimes downright mean nature of the game is fine. We've often followed up a game by immediately shuffling well and starting another game, which gives the loser a chance to get some revenge, especially if they ended up going negative when everything was said and done. So if you're looking for a quick playing, mean but not too mean little card game that's wonderful at two players but can be expanded to accommodate more, then I highly recommend looking into Sky Tango. As long as you don't mind some take that in your dinnertime gaming, it's an ideal game for playing pre or post meals, or even during a meal if you can find the space next to your plate. And around $15 to $20 it's well worth adding to your collection if you're interested in small box games. Now I'll be skipping next episode to attend a local convention, but if you want to talk more about Sky Tango, or curse me for introducing yet another thing you want to put in your quiver, then you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Look, things are pretty busy around here these days, and I'm starting to feel like my gaming hobby is starting to suffer. I was trying to remember the last time I played a game that lasted over, say, 90 minutes, and I couldn't. I mean, except for my time at BGGCon where I have nothing to focus on but gaming. The idea of concentrating on one thing for so long stresses me out these days. But playing board games is one of those things that brings some much-needed balance during these busy times. A chance to just enjoy things one moment at a time. A chance to experience delight in the details without needing to rush. Even taking 20 or 30 minutes to do something that I do just for pure joy and recreation is important, and playing a game like Atlas Enchanted Lands provides that balance I'm looking for, both in gameplay and in its theme. Atlas Enchanted Lands, designed by J. Alex Kevern, is a 2-4 player card game released in 2017 by Renegade Game Studios. This game is about exploring a serene and ever-evolving landscape as you view nature across time and place. There's a genteel quality to Beth Sobel's evocative artwork featured in the game. On the surface, Atlas Enchanted Lands is light and airy and peaceful, but dig a little deeper, and this game is full of careful strategy and some precise, well-planned hand management with a bit of luck thrown in just to keep it interesting. See? Balance. At the start of the game, Players are dealt a starting hand and given chips they'll use later to place either time or place bets. More on what I mean by that later. 
Players take turns playing cards from their hands into one of four suited rows represented by four times of day. Players will lay their cards into the corresponding suit in the spot it fits in when considering its numerical value. The one card of a suit will be played towards the far left and the eight towards the far right and the others somewhere in the middle. When a player plays a card, they have the option to place a bet using up to five of their chips on that card, indicating if they think it will score with time, meaning four sequential cards in the same row, or place, meaning four cards with the same numeric value, one in each column. Once one of the time or place sequence requirements is met, any tokens representing correct predictions stay on the board and incorrect guesses are discarded. Then all the cards involved in that scoring run are flipped over and play continues until all cards have been played. Then scores are calculated. Players score one point per correct remaining bet and then one point for each chip in that bet and the highest score wins. This game scratches that quick play itch I find myself feeling a lot these days. Thematically, it's a bit thin, but the art is beautiful. I mean, it's really no secret that I've pretty much appointed myself like president of the Beth Sobel fan club, so I'm biased. But take a look at this game and try to tell me her attention to detail and her artistic tone is anything but fantastic. Plus, I'll take a game with quick and strong gameplay that's pretty to look at over a deeply immersive game any day. But for a game whose visuals are so serene and calming, my approach to the game is anything but. I found myself, each time I played, constantly suspicious of my opponent's plays and bets. It felt like when I played poker, trying to figure out who's bluffing or who just let me know exactly what they were looking to do by laying out a big five-chip bet on a card. And more importantly, how could I use the info I had with the cards in my hand and the info provided by my opponent's actions to, well, ruin them? And how could I do it without in turn revealing my strategy or non-verbally saying too much about the cards I had in front of me, leading folks to ride on my scoring coattails? Could I hold out closing out a run to let me place just one more bet? Or did my opponent have the card that would close out the run in the other direction, leaving me out in the cold? This game is, dare I say it, a little mean. And I kind of like it. Gameplay lasts about 20 minutes meaning you can get a few rounds in in no time. My husband and I have been playing a lot of, okay, best, two out of three tournaments of this lately, and can do so in under an hour. The rules are easy, but I didn't feel like I really got it until my second playthrough. This is definitely one of those games that would be best taught through one learning round versus just an explanation of the rulebook. But new gamers would pick it up quickly, especially those who are used to playing traditional card games like poker or hearts or spades. Retail price on Atlas Enchanted Lands is under $20, and I've seen it even cheaper than that on some online retailers. $20 is a perfectly fair price for a game of this style and weight, and I would encourage purchase even more so with some of the deeper discounts I've seen lately. If you're looking for a fun card game that's quick to play, yet encourages a good amount of planning, Atlas Enchanted Lands is one to check out. For the Five Bye, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. I back a fair number of games on Kickstarter, which means I often wait a very long time for a game to arrive. Fog of Love, designed by Jakob Yaskov and published in December 2017 by Hush Hush Projects, is one of the rare occasions where, when it finally got here, the game didn't just meet but exceeded my hyped up expectations. 
Build as a romantic comedy board game, Fog of Love is a two-player storytelling game about romance. Each person plays a character, and I love that Fog of Love doesn't require you to create a male-female couple. When my husband and I play, we use a spinner to determine which gender each of us will play. We've played mixed-gender couples, two men, and two women. Gameplay involves playing cards with little scenes your characters have to resolve. The scenes start out light, what should you have for breakfast, should you crash a fun party, that sort of thing, and as the relationship progresses, they get increasingly serious. By the end of the game, you might be coping with disapproving in-laws, having an affair, or dealing with the question of whether to have children. With each card, you make choices using poker chips and reveal them simultaneously. Based on your choice, you might gain happiness points, especially if your choice matches your partner's. You may also get to place tokens on personality traits like introverted versus extroverted or organized versus disorganized. Each player has three secret trait goals, and making choices that align with those goals gets you more happiness points at the end of the game. This creates an interesting tension. Do you make the choice that will give you a trait you need, or the one that you think your partner will choose because something bad will happen if you don't match? Or do you roleplay it, ignore the traits, and make the choice that makes the most sense for your character? On some cards, you have all three options. You also have destiny cards in Fog of Love, and you'll have to choose one at the end of the game. A destiny card might require both players to end the game with nearly equal happiness, or your goal might be for your partner's happiness to be very high. There are even destinies that have the couple break up. What's interesting to me is that nowhere in the rulebook does it say, fulfilling your destiny means winning the game. In fact, there is no win condition per se in Fog of Love. Fulfilling your destiny feels like winning, but the rules explicitly say that destiny cards are less important than creating an interesting experience for your characters. Storytelling is the ultimate goal of Fog of Love. The game is gorgeous. Beautiful graphic design, incredibly high-quality components. I know from Kickstarter updates that the designer paid extreme attention to detail, fine-tuning every aspect of component design, and it shows. I mean, the box insert is wonderful. The poker chips you use to make your choices. They're solid and sturdy and feel so nice in your hand. It's a joy to spend time with this game. Fog of Love comes with an outstanding tutorial. Instructional cards placed in the deck so that you draw them as you play your first game, each one explaining new rules for the next stage of play. The effect is like a video game tutorial, where instead of having to learn a rulebook in advance, rules are revealed as you need them, with a pop-up message as you enter a new location. The Fog of Love tutorial is so clever and makes learning the game so easy that I wish more games would do it. I've played with multiple people and I've never had to teach it. Just reset the tutorial so they could learn as we go. My only criticism of the tutorial is that resetting it involves ordering the cards by number, and the numbers are printed in such tiny type that I literally wasn't sure at first that they even were numbers. I have average middle-aged eyesight, and even with my glasses, I need a magnifying lamp to read those numbers. Not everyone has a magnifying lamp, though I suppose if you bought Fog of Love as a couples game and always play with the same person, you won't need to reset the tutorial. Still, it points to an overall legibility problem. I can generally read the text on the cards as long as I'm in a well-lit room, but the rulebook is printed in tiny gray type and is quite difficult to read. It looks lovely, but I suspect they could have designed something that looked just as nice and wasn't quite so hostile to players with less than perfect vision. Speaking of couples game, I've heard many people describe Fog of Love that way, and I don't think that's true. I've played it with friends with no romantic attachment, and we had a great time. 
It's a storytelling game where you create a fictional romantic relationship. An actual romantic relationship is not a prerequisite. In fact, for people inexperienced at role-playing, I can imagine there might be problems with the real relationship bleeding into the game. Fog of Love is about making choices that meet the needs of two fictional characters. Those choices will sometimes be the opposite of what you would choose in real life. That said, if you're listening to this and feeling squicked out by the idea of role-playing a romance with a platonic friend, I encourage you to broaden your mind a bit. Emotional intimacy can be scary, but Fog of Love isn't real. It's just storytelling. You could look at it as a low-stakes way to practice talking about that stuff. Or you could just look at it as a great game. And that's Fog of Love. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not using colored chips to guess what kind of breakfast my partner likes best, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here. And this episode, I'm going to reveal my recent and not-so-secret love affair with London, second edition, by Martin Wallace. Artwork by Mike Atkinson, Natalia Borak, and Shlemshav Sebeki. Published by Osprey Games. This is a 2-4 player card drafting and tableau building game that lasts around 60-90 to minutes. I have to tell you to begin with, I'm going to unashamedly talk about how excellent this game is. I can be critical of games, but the games I play purely for fun in my spare time are usually going to be games that I really like, because I don't often buy lots of games, and when purchases are made, they're going to be ones that are vetted out carefully, and I know that I'm going to enjoy because, you know, money. I can often tell you anything I think could be improved upon a game or that you might not like or may not get along with, but most of my game chat will often end in recommendations. And London's second edition is definitely one that I'm going to highly recommend. Before I go any further, I should also mention that I have not played or really seen much of the first edition of London, so I'm talking about the current edition published by Offspring Games. As far as I know, it had a repackaging with new artwork and some tweaks to the rules. I'm very happy that Offspring Games have republished this game. I have quite a few of the other titles, and they're always really, like, low-key stunning, and they open up, like, bound books and have very lovely inserts. So in London, players start with a hand of six cards and take turns drawing from a central deck. Each turn, you must draw a card from the deck or the central player board, and then you can either develop your city using cards, run your city, which means activating cards, most of which are then flipped over with a few exceptions. Run your city will gain you money, prestige points on the central board, and give you end of game points or ways to generate further income and remove poverty. You take poverty tokens every time you run your city, so you need to try and limit or remove your poverty before the end of the game, as this will majorly deduct your end of game points. You can also buy borough cards, which assist you in scoring points, drawing cards, and removing poverty. And the winner is to play the most points at the end. So what do I like about it so much? Well, let's start with a simple one. It's fun. It's just a really fun game that is highly enjoyable to play for an hour or so. It doesn't tax the brain too much. It's not a slow burner. You're just into it right away and it just keeps picking up from there. It's chock full of really difficult decisions that can really turn the game around for you. And most of that is related to the poverty issue because it's very difficult to manage poverty. But somehow I've achieved this pretty well in my game so far. It's balancing how often you run your city, how many cards to play to your tableau and how many areas to build and so forth. And there's a delicate balance of generating enough points and income to keep you afloat and possibly win you the game without building up a great deal of poverty in the process. It's not hard to get rid of per se, and there's plenty of cards in the game that will give you the opportunity, but because every time you run your city you gain poverty back, plus how many cards you're holding, 
it can sometimes outweigh the positives. Luckily, I found a few strategies to work around this, but I'm not going to tell you because if you play the game for yourself, then half the fun is figuring that out, obviously. The hand management aspect with the card drafting is very strong. So much of your success is what cards you choose to use and when, which cards to keep and how to make the most of your hands is the real core of the game. I love London for the tension towards the end of the game. As you see in the main deck depleting, players start to wonder if running their city again would be a good idea or if the amount of poverty gained would be worth the trouble, or try to lose as many cards from your hand as possible as this would increase end of game poverty. Often nobody wants to be the person to draw the last card at the end of the game, so that really gets super fun toward the end. I think that some potential players of London may put off by the deduction of points for poverty. There was a similar mechanic in a study of Emerald by Martin Wallace, which I personally disliked immensely, and for me didn't make much sense. But in the case of London, that's not the case uh, for me, because I feel like the fate of my city um, and its poverty in my hands and if I lose it's because that was ultimately my shortcoming in the game it doesn't feel needless or leave me too disappointed it's more like damn it and you can have a laugh about it having said that the deductions to points depending on poverty are brutal like double digit point losses so that's bad times right there but fun so I think London is possibly a game you definitely need the right people to play with if you have some sore losers or those easily frustrated in your mids then they might not enjoy this game, which would have a knock-on effect to the general good vibe. The artwork is extremely lovely, very quaint, very pretty, and I've certainly wild away some time admiring the artwork. Also, I love the fact that as someone who has lived on the outskirts of London and has been a London board for much of her life, I enjoy seeing all the famous attractions and saying, oh, I've been there. And so one of my favourite cards is Bethnal Green and Stepney, one of the borough cards. And this holds some sentiment for me because that's where my parents were born and my dad's parents live, so I spent a lot of my childhood in that area and have lots of nice memories. Lastly, I have to say, I'm actually pretty good at it, and that is not a statement I make often. For all my love of playing games, there's a few I can say on, on the quiet, like, this is my game, I'm pretty good at this. Usually I'm asking myself, how can I be this bad? I also like London for being a game which is very full and fulfilling, but it only plays in like an hour with two players and it has very minimal setup. I've been quite mentally fatigued recently and London has really been a perfect pick-me-up. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram or YouTube channel Shiny Half Meeples, pop on my new website www.shinyhalfmeeplesco.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples Co. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about No Thanks. Board gamers talk a lot about family games, but we don't always focus on games that you can actually play with your family. I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are probably pretty invested in board games as a hobby, and probably have a lot of family members, especially extended family members, who very much are not. If that's you, and you spend any time at all with groups of people who aren't board gamers, I can heartily recommend Thorsten Gimler's 2004 small box card game, No Thanks. No Thanks is a dead simple to learn push your luck card game. It's a small deck of cards marked 3 to 35. You shuffle up, remove 9 cards, and give everyone 11 mini poker chips. To win, you do want lots of chips. You don't want lots of cards. One at a time, you flip the cards over and either place one of your chips on the card or take the card and all the chips on it. When all the cards are gone, your chips are worth positive points, and the numbers on the cards are worth negative points. We play with our chips in a bag so you don't have to hold them all the time. Keeping your chip count secret is really important in No Thanks. One of the best parts of playing is watching an opponent be forced to take a really high card when they run out of chips, and it never fails to get a groan from the player and a big laugh from the rest of the table. No Thanks is a teach in five minutes and play for hours kind of game. No Thanks is mostly about pushing your luck and deciding when a high card is worth taking based on the number of chips you'll get with it. 
There are a lot of different strategies, and a fair amount of luck, obviously, but No Thanks succeeds largely because of one of my favorite aspects of games, which I've talked about before at some length, Emergence. As a quick reminder, Emergence in Games is complex gameplay and strategy that arises from a structured set of rules, but isn't actually outlined in the rules. I sometimes hear Emergence referred to as metagame, but that's not exactly right. Think of it more as consequences of player actions not laid out in the rule set. For example, nowhere in the rules of No Thanks does it say that you should take strategic losses to mitigate future potentially worse losses, but it can be a really strong strategy. Nowhere does it say that you should purposely take a card to block an opponent from making a run of three, but I've done it and gone on to win by doing it. Simple games that create space for complexly emergent interactions between players are usually in my category of the new classics. No Thanks is one of her 88-year-old grandmother's absolute favorite games. She is, by nature, a gambler, and so is willing to take huge risks, which sometimes pay off in a big way. By contrast, when playing No Thanks, I am extremely risk-averse, and so I don't often win, but I don't often lose either. Mimi will regularly let a high card build up chips early in the game, and then take them all before someone else has the chance to, even if it's a poor chips-to-points ratio. Then, two or three turns later, she'll do it again. It's a big risk, but often puts her in a position of having a nearly unlimited supply of chips for the rest of the game, while starving the other players and forcing them to take cards with no rewards, sometimes multiple turns in a row. It's brutal, but it's risky. When she wins, she wins big. When she loses, she loses big. Part of the magic of No Thanks is that it's a simple structure which can support a wide variety of playstyles at the same table. I think No Thanks is best with four players, though five is a close second. The game comes with 55 chips, which allows up to five players to take 11 each. I don't think it would be a problem at all to play with 6 to 8 by simply getting a single extra chip, which you could even use as the first player marker, and then simply splitting the chips up, playing with 7, 8, or 9 chips each depending on player count. At higher player counts, the game will become less strategic, but if you're looking for a heavy 8-player strategy game, you're probably talking to the wrong person. I will say that as much as I would like it to, No Thanks just doesn't work at 2-player, and it's not really much fun at 3. An interesting meta element in No Thanks that can lead to emergent decisions is who you're sitting next to. If the person on your right tends to be a wild card, taking things they shouldn't, making erratic decisions, that sort of thing, it can really shape the choices that you make. I tend to play more cautiously if I know the person who's going before me every time is prone to make rash decisions, but if they're very risk-averse, I tend to push my luck as much as possible. Now, No Thanks is cheap, about $12 in the current Mayfair edition. The cards and chips are fine quality, and the box is one of my favorite sizes, about 3 inch by 5 inch, or what I think of as the Amigo card game size, about the same as a 6 Nimit box. I have a long-term plan, never realized, of course, of getting someone to illustrate big, beautiful, tarot-sized No Thanks cards, and then playing with big poker chips and nice velvet bags. I'll let you know if I ever actually follow through with this, I probably won't. If you want to be really cheap, you could just make your own copy with note cards and pennies. So who should buy No Thanks? People who love social games, but not social deduction. People who love bidding and secret information. People who want to push their luck and have a very thick skin for glorious failure. And people who want an easy-to-teach, quick-to-play pocket game for family, co-workers, or strangers at a bar. I give No Thanks 55 out of 55 delicious tiny poker chips sliding along the table toward my waiting fist. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Thank you for listening to The 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The Five Buy is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.